0: And Greg said, we're in the last week of our Love Does message series. Just by a quick show of hands, a little crowd participation today. How many of you guys are in a small group right now? You're doing that? Maybe you haven't started, but you've signed up. All right, all around the room there are people. That's good. Small groups around here are the place where we take what's happening on Sunday morning, um, which is kind of large group shotgun approach. Uh, And I talk about some stuff, and hopefully we're applying to our life. But it's in small groups where we take the stuff that God... God is doing in our lives and we interact with other people about it. And we get to talk about it. Sometimes we read a book together. Sometimes we serve together. Or Sometimes we fellowship together and we get to encourage one another. The way we like to say it is we get to hang around with people going in the same direction we are and they encourage us. They speak life into our lives. They speak truth into our lives. We help each other along. And so if you've signed up for a small group, you know how cool it is to do that, how amazing it is to do that. And as I speak today, you're going to receive some extra encouragement, a little bit of uh, propping up of that effort to carve out some time to be in a small group. Now, if you're not in a small group, that's okay. You can stop by the connections table when you walk out into uh, the lobby, that little... uh, cutout section there in the lobby and you can talk to somebody about that and we'll do our best to help you get connected all right so let me ask you a question i have already had a little bit of crowd participation today this one um won't take a whole lot of effort but i'll need you to turn to your neighbor here's the question i want you to ask when you were a kid what did you want to be great at when you were like young and you looked at the world around you and you thought about yourself in the world what did you want to be great at i wanted at one point to be a fighter pilot okay And so, um, you you see how that turned out? Um, Let me just ask you, what did you want to be be great at? Would you take just five seconds, turn to your neighbor, even men, all right, you got to participate, and tell everybody what you wanted to be great at. Go ahead. Do that right now. All right, we have some participators today. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. I heard baseball player. I heard football. I think from over here where the staff's sitting, I heard ladies' man. Um, <laughs> still working on that one. All right, all right, good, all right, go ahead. So turn, turn your hands back up here. Um, you know, wanting to be great at something is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Hey, I, I know a lot of people that are great at stuff, and I, I've heard about people that I don't know personally, and I've seen them on TV, or I've seen them in an arena or at a stadium, and they're great at something. But, but you know this, don't you? You know that you can be great at something and still not be great, did you know that? You know that you can be great at something and still not be a great person? So, so some of my family were at a baseball game and they got there early because they wanted to get some signatures by the stars on the field, the people that were great at baseball. I mean, some of the players on that team, they were great, especially with young kids. And so when the kids were down by the, uh, the, by the fence there, by that little brick wall, and they were holding up their little pads and papers or whatever they had bought to get signatures on, a lot of the players would come by before the game as they were out there kind of warming up, and they'd sign signatures, and they'd speak briefly with the kids, and they were full of smiles and stuff. But in this one particular day, I won't out anybody here uh, in terms of the players necessarily, because they're our home team here, they're you know, the famous Cincinnati Reds. And, and this one player was, was incredibly good. And, and as he was walking closer and closer to where all the folks were standing to get their signatures, they all start yelling at his saying, hey, 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 would you, hey, sign our tag, you know, that, that kind of stuff, and all these little cute little kids, you know. and without even looking, he just kind of waves his hand up in the air and kind of does this number and walks the other way. Now, maybe he was busy, maybe he was having a bad day, no big deal, but I'm just just illustrating the fact that you have known people and I've known people that are great at something, but it doesn't necessarily make them a great person, right? Now, and the example i use maybe he's a great person i don't know but in that example what happened was is the people that were hoping to get the signature and they were hoping to have this connection with this guy that was great at baseball they didn't get the experience with him that he was necessarily a great person here's 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 one of the things we're going to focus on today on the screens if you look at it that being great is far more rewarding than being great at something Being great, truly great, a great person is far more rewarding than being great at something. And I don't know if you know this or not, but because you have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible says that your life with God can be great. Your life in eternity in heaven is going to be phenomenal and awesome, and we only get glimpses of what that can look like. But the whole Bible also communicates to us that our life here and now on this earth can be great. And not just that we're great at something, we have a profound skill or insight that make people look at us and go, wow, she's great or he's great. But beyond that, we can really have an engagement with the people around us where they look at us and we feel about ourselves that this is a great life, that God is making me into a great person. But being great isn't about being way out ahead of somebody else. That's not what it's about. That's when you're great at something. When you're great at baseball, you're way ahead of the crowd. There's the group. You get called out because of your exceptional skill, the discipline that has led to your being phenomenally good at shortstop or pitching or batting or whatever it is. But being great is more than that. It isn't simply about being way out ahead of somebody else. Being great is leveraging what you're good at to the benefit of other people that's why those really good baseball players that were standing there signing those autographs with those little kids those kids had a connection with them it was personal they go home they feel a stronger connection to that person and maybe the guy that didn't sign you know maybe he's even a better player maybe he's even greater at but the people that connected with those folks that are signing they feel this the same thing's true in your life when think about real quickly the people in your life that you would say are great people i'm not talking about the people that are great at something but they're great people. Think about them. What made them great? It wasn't just that they had exceptional skill, or, although often they do. It wasn't just that they ex- uh, ex- exhibited all kinds of personal discipline that led them being unique among their peers and had special insight or abilities or wisdom. It wasn't just that. It was the way that when they had that, il- uh, that insight, that ability, that skill, the way they interacted with the people around them. It caused you to look at that person and say, that's a great person. They get it. I, maybe you said it this way. I really like them. Or man, she's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Not just at that, but their interaction. There's a personal nature. As many of you in this room, here's what I, I don't know that you understand. And I, I want to try to shine some light on it today. That because you have a relationship with God, because he's actively at work in your life, that while what you do matters, the skill The discipline, the effectiveness of the thing matters. While all that matters, there is a thing that trumps all of that stuff right there. That even if you're not exceptionally good, you're one in a million, you're a superstar, even if those words don't define you, you can still be great. Because greatness isn't simply a function of your skills and your abilities. Greatness, as God defines it, ultimate greatness, even the way we define it when we look at people, is not just what you're good at. It's how you engage it. It's how you engage people when you're doing the thing. That's why you and I watch singers on television, and we can acknowledge phenomenal skill. Can't stand her. Phenomenal skill. Glad she's not my daughter. Anybody said that in the last few weeks? Yeah. <laughs> you all know who I'm talking about, don't you? But we're going shh. We don't talk about people around here. All right. So, but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Because even though you can acknowledge great skill, you don't necessarily want to move up and live next door to and have them related because they're not great people. And yet, because God is active in this world, and because you have a relationship with him, many of you in this room, some of you don't, and today you're going to hear a message about what we aspire to, what we hope to do. We don't always live up to it, but it's what we feel compelled to press towards. Because, because we have a God that's active in our life, He calls us to not just be great at something, and that's very important. And what he's called us to do, doing it effectively, doing it well, being at the top, that stuff matters. But what matters more is the way we engage people with what we have. Being great isn't simply a function of what you're good at. It's how you leverage what you're good at to the benefit of other people. Now, we're going to look today at an incredible story. And I want to give you a little time to get there in your Bible. It's in Luke chapter 10 hold when you get there just hold we'll get there in just a moment but i want to share with you a quote from the author of the book that many people are in small groups around here looking at and again if you haven't found a small group stop at the table we'll do our best to help you get connected to a small group here's what bob goff who wrote love does who were kind of using this book as a jumping off point for this message here here's what bob goff said he said you want a mission statement to go along with being secretly incredible that's what he said about. He said, I'm not just uh, on the inside being awesome, being good, being a great person. He says, okay, here's your mission statement from God to you. Be awesome. Be awesome. Not just great at stuff, but internally, inside, be awesome. That's our mission statement from God. God looks at each person and says, because I'm active in your life, because I have a relationship with you, I want you to be awesome. That sounds pretty incredible. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be awesome. But when I was a kid, sometimes even now, I get the two sides of this coin confused. I, I, I make mistake. I don't see them clearly. I think that sometimes being great at something automatically will mean that I'm awesome, that I'm a great person, but it doesn't. The truth is, is, sometimes even when we're not great at something, we can, because God is active in our life, because we're letting Him lead our lives, we can still be great people. And today's story is going to show us that Luke chapter 10. Now here, here, here's one more thing i got to had put in your mind before we actually look at the passage. Here's something I've dis- discovered. And, and m- maybe you've seen it too. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you'll find yourself agreeing. Maybe not. It's okay if you don't agree with me here. But I found that the wealthier a person is, the more intelligent a person is, the more unique skill a person has, when they're really exceptional and they're away from the crowd, like they really stand out, the harder it is sometimes To be a great person. There's something about being very unique and very great at something that makes being a great person a little bit more difficult. Remember, a great person is a person who takes what they're good at and they leverage it to the benefit of other people. I have found as Jill and I, over the years, when we started off, we were both making minimum wage when we got married. And we were loving life. It didn't matter. But at some point, we decided we'd like to eat better than we're eating. You know, macaroni and cheese gets old. ramen noodles gets old after a while. And so she'd work a little harder, and I'd lurk a lot, and she'd apply for this promotion, and I'd apply for this thing, and we'd make a little bit more. What we had found is that in those early days, man, money didn't bother us and didn't matter to us too much. And we were just living on love and life and happiness, and it was all good. But at some point, we started growing up. And ironically, the more money we made, here's what we found. It was harder and harder sometimes to use that blessing God has given us to turn around and bless other people. When we were poor, we always had extra food at our house. Yeah, And here's what I mean by that. We were never poor, right? But, but it was always easy for us. But as we got busier and worked harder and focused a little bit more on our income and set some goals, our sense of our availability to bless other people through our wealth got harder and harder. We had to take more time, more effort, more energy to do that. I don't know that I'm smart, but I, I know that sometimes I, I like to think that I am. And I've noticed that as I've gotten, you know, maybe brighter, maybe a little bit more intelligent, that as my life has gone on and I've learned more stuff and I've gotten greater experience and I'm surrounded by more and more stuff to think about and reflect on and consider, it takes more and more effort for me to carve out time to think about how do I take this stuff and use it to bless other people. How do I just live life around people in such a way that the good stuff that God's given to me, I can use it to bless other people? It's difficult to do that. The challenge, the harder challenge in life isn't necessarily being great at something. The truth is, for a lot of us in the room, if you practice hard enough, if you bring enough discipline, if you work the hours, if you are around the right people and build those relationships, you can get great at at some stuff that really matters. You can A lot of it is a function of discipline and effort and study and relationships and leveraging what you have. The harder challenge in life is to be a great person, and yet that's exactly what God's called us to. And I think, and I think that many of you will agree with me, that being a great person trumps being great at something any day. Now, hopefully you can do both, but being a great person as God defines it, leveraging what we have to bless other people trumps being great any day. That's why Bob Goff says, be awesome. That's, that's your mission statement from God. Go around this world leveraging what God has given you to bless other people. Not just serve yourself, not to cocoon you in this special category called awesome, but to bless other people. So Luke chapter 10, we're going to use this story to kind of drill down on this truth. It's a story that maybe you've heard about before. And whenever I preach on stories that we've heard about many, many times, I, I have to give this caution. Don't let the familiarity of this text cause you to not look at it with fresh eyes. Don't let your being familiar with the story and generally knowing where it's going and kind of knowing the punchline keep you from engaging this story. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, if you're looking at your Bible right now, you'll notice that right above there, there's probably a little title for this section of scripture. And the title for this section of scripture in your Bible probably says, The Good Samaritan, The Good Samaritan. I'm going to let you know that today, I think that's, that's a, a mistitle. You do know, hopefully, if not, I'll, I'll let you know, that those titles were not originally in your Bible. In fact, when you open your Bible and it's got numbers, chapter 1, verse 12, or in our case, chapter 10, verse 25, when you look at them, those weren't originally part of the story. Originally, it was just one big piece of literature. One In, in, in our case, in the book of Luke, one big story about Jesus being told, or in Paul's writing, one big letter being told. And often they were written on a scroll at some point, you know, around the time of Jesus' life. They started using individual leaf pages, but generally written on a scroll. But at some point later, when people started looking at these pieces of literature, they thought it'd be nice to have a a way to find our place together. So instead of going like, like this when I was teaching, somewhere in the middle of Luke, you know, not in the middle, middle, but just a little bit back, find that word. They they put numbers in to help people find stuff. And then a little bit later, even to help a little bit more, people started titling the passages to kind of let you know what's where. So if you're thumbing through and you're looking like, where is that Good Samaritan? Oh, it's right, Good Samaritan. Right there's the story. You may have to look at the little text. You can look at the bolder, larger text above. And I actually think that this title is a misnomer, all right? So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, here's what it says. On one occasion, An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is a lawyer, all right? By the way, this is the source of all lawyer jokes. If you're a lawyer in the room, the Bible right here is, uh, no, I'm kidding. All right, so, lawyer. Here's what he said. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question. Jesus has been going around asking folks, Um, you know, what's your life with God like? What are you thinking about? What do you want to do? And he was telling stories about that and he was giving them teaching about that and people started asking deep inward questions. So this lawyer comes up and he sits next to Jesus and he calls him teacher or maybe your Bible says rabbi, similar words, all right? What must I do to have this life that you're talking about, life with God, right? Now, it's interesting, most lawyers I know, they already know the answer to the question before they ask it. Isn't that kind of like the rule for being a lawyer? And, and this lawyer is no different. He's never going to ask a question he doesn't want to know the, that he doesn't already know the answer to because he doesn't want to be embarrassed. If he's ever in a trial situation, he's not going to ask you a question and not know what you're going to say. He's asking you a question to take your testimony to a point. And that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, we read this story, and I don't know if you know that at this point in Jesus' life, he was already embroiled in all, uh, embroiled in all kinds of, of difficulty and conflict. And so regularly, people were coming at him with the heart to trap him. And I think that's what's going on here. What must I do to inherit or to have this kind of life that you're talking about? So verse 26, Jesus answers, not with an answer, but with a question. What is written in the law, Mr. Lawyer, Jesus says? How do you read it? I said, so the lawyer He has a ready answer for this. He knows what the law says, this thing we call the Old Testament. He also knows what Jesus has been talking about. So he says in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's what the law has said. And almost as if he can anticipate what Jesus might say. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he had heard Jesus give what we would call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Love people the way you want to be loved. Engage people the way you want to be engaged. So he gives them the, the technical answer from the law, but he also tags on the words and the idea of Jesus almost as if to say, all right, I'm going to give you a complete answer. Love by the law and love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 28, Jesus answered and he said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's interesting. I mean, these two statements are pretty profound. And they have far-reaching implications. They're much easier to say, aren't they, than they are to do. Love God with your whole being and love people completely as well. Love God, love people. I mean, it pretty much encapsulates the kind of life that God has called us to. And yet the implications are huge you hear me beat this drum pretty regularly, but I'm going to beat it one more time. Nothing like hitting a dead horse, all right? Um, Here's the truth. Sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, I I, want to think that the Bible contains these, these amazing mysteries, that if I could plumb the depth of the scriptures and discover the kernel of truth that other people have overlooked, I will have the secret to my life and probably the secret to your life as well. If I could really get deep And if you know me, you know I'm a huge fan of Bible study. Most of us in the room would be benefited from being in a content-driven Bible study regularly. And yet the truth of the matter is, most of the deep stuff of the Bible is right on the surface. Love God, love people. You and I could spend a lifetime, a lifetime trying to walk that out and never fully plumb its depths not that it's complicated to understand the deep stuff of the bible is simple to understand it's complicated and difficult to live out very complicated and difficult to live out and so jesus says you've answered correctly if you do this you're going to have the kind of life that i'm calling you to the kind of life that god wants you to have but then verse 29 tells us the heart of the lawyer but he the lawyer wanted to justify himself <laughs> oh He wanted to be shown right. He wanted to be shown great at something. So he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? Now perhaps he was trying to trap Jesus. We don't know exactly, but that phrase, wanting to justify himself, kind of puts the don't 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 into the story, all right? So who is my neighbor? In other words, I want you to so broadly define this word neighbor as if it has no punch and maybe discredit itself, or I want you to so narrowly define this word neighbor that I can excuse myself. I, I don't know exactly where his angle was here, but the Bible tells us very clearly that the word neighbor, in fact, here it is on the screen in the Greek, plesion, in the Greek, plasion. It simply means the nigh one, the nigh one, the close one, the neighbor, neighbor, nigh, that, that's where we get that. The neighbor, who, who is that, the The word simply means the close one, the one next to you. But the lawyer wanted Jesus to be specific, so specific, and then maybe use the definition from Jesus to exempt himself. Well, if if that's a neighbor, I don't really engage that person. I don't have to love God and love people with that person because that's not really my neighbor. So what Jesus does instead is he reminds them that there's a principle here. Far greater than being great at something, It's more rewarding and more important and more special, more meaningful, more satisfying to be a great person. Being great is far more rewarding than being great at something. So in verse 30, Jesus said in reply to this man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, years ago, people would read this passage, and they found in this passage a mistake in their Bible. Because everybody knows that when you look at a map, This is Palestine, all right? Up here is the uh, Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the the Dead Sea right there. Everybody knows that Jerusalem is about right here, right? J-R for Jerusalem, and Jericho is right here, J-R for Jericho. That doesn't really work, does it? J-R-C, J-R-S, there we go. All right. And, 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 and if he was going down, people would read and they would assume that everybody knows that Jericho is kind of northeasterly of Jerusalem. You don't go down. I mean, if you look at it, you're, you're going up, right? But, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. Jerusalem is about 2,000 feet above sea level. And Jericho is about 1,200 feet below sea, sea level. If you ever walked from Jerusalem to Jericho you definitely walk down I mean over half a mile down over 17 miles they're 17 miles apart but a half a mile in elevation in difference so you always walk down from Jerusalem to Jericho so Jesus said there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes People loved Jesus' stories. A lot of times when he would tell the stories, they wouldn't know what he means. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot of times the disciples didn't know the impact of Jesus' stories. They didn't know the meaning of Jesus' stories. And Jesus would often have to pull them away on the backside of the stories and explain to them what the story meant. But usually when Jesus told a story, people leaned in. Even though they didn't know the point, they thought the story was compelling. So when Jesus started, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Many folks had made that march. They had made that full day and a half sometimes two day journey of 17 miles on foot and going from jerusalem to jericho wasn't a problem going from jericho to jerusalem is a whole lot more difficult walking uphill in fact i think i have a picture of if, if we have the guys this is actually a cop uh, a picture of the road the old roman road leading from jerusalem up on the top down to jericho or looking from jericho up towards jerusalem it's a difficult and you can kind of see challenging terrain hot arid, not much greenery, not a lot of shade. And the road was often, as was in those days, often the road of travel was packed with thieves, looking to take advantage of tired people who were traveling, usually had a little extra money to take care of themselves while they were gone, or they were on some trade route, and so they had a little extra goods or money or, or gold or silver with them. And this was the case here in the story. And so when Jesus started telling the story, a lot of folks leaned in the Bible says that Jesus said this, that he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes. Some people gasped in the crowd because they didn't have TV, and if you're telling a story and it was good, you would, you know, respond the way you'd respond to a movie, sometimes talk at it. And they beat him, and they went away. It's kind of an ugly picture, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man. If you underline or circle in your bible circle the word saw it's important for our story he saw the man he looked at him his eyes saw the physical form of the man but beyond that his brain registered i see that man he's hurt he's in trouble he's in distress and the bible says that this priest that everybody would have known the priest by the garby wore, by the elevated status he had he was great at religion A priest who saw the man who registered in his brain, this man needs some help. The Bible says this priest passed by on the other side. I don't know why the priest passed by on the other side. All I know is that he did. But in that day, it was a pretty common thought that if somebody experienced bad stuff in their life, like got beat up, stripped naked, left for dead, then that probably meant they had bad stuff in their life. Either them or their parents or their kids did something wrong, and they're simply experiencing the rewards the karma, the do good, get good, do bad, get bad kind of life. So maybe the priest looked at the bad situation the guy was in and thought, yeah, maybe on some level he deserves to suffer. It's God's will for him to suffer. Maybe he, he saw it and he figured out and he reasoned in his mind, it's not best for me to stop. So he went to the other side. And people in the crowd at this point are probably thinking, no, ah, it sounds reasonable. You don't want to get caught up in that kind of stuff. Yeah, the man needs help, but. You know, it's not really my job to do that. And at some level, the man, the priest thought about. It registered, and he made a conscious decision to go the other side. Verse 32. Jesus continues the story. So to a Levite, now the priests are like up here on the road, but Levites, they had, they had elevated status. Levites were, uh, typically had a little extra money. They were from the tribe of Levi, the original Israelites, there were 12 kids. 12 major clans and the Levites had special status. They, they had access to God's stuff that other people didn't have and they often became the intermediaries between God and people and they had elevated status, often wore clothes and typically had a little bit of money. And the Bible says that this Levite, the kind of category that everybody in the crowd would have known about and thought about and understood, the Levite, when he came to the place and he, and here it is again, saw the man. He didn't just physically see it. It registered in his head. He had a thought process about it. We're not told about the thought process. Maybe, maybe he thought, uh, he was too busy. He's got busy work to do. He, he's an important man. Maybe he thought, I've got too much wealth, and this is kind of a sketchy situation. I don't want to be it. But when he saw the man, he came up with a reason in his own head why he should not stop and help. The Bible says that when he saw him, he went to the other side. But then the Bible says, and here's where it gets interesting, especially if you're that original audience listening, but a Samaritan. <laughs> now, between Jerusalem and Jerusalem, and Jericho, there's this little dotted line area here called Samaria. And the Samaritans who lived in Samaria, they weren't really liked by the Jewish people. They were, they were considered, and I don't mean to be crass here, they were considered to be half-breeds some Jewish heritage, but they had mixed in with the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, depending on which time period, and they had intermarried and interbled, and and the Jews looked at them and thought that their bloodline had been perverted and their religion had been perverted. And so if you could ever avoid going into Samaria, you would. You just wouldn't go there. Instead, you would take the long and ugly and dusty road down and around. Now, it was quicker and easier to go to Samaria and go through Samaria to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, but you wouldn't do it. Very rarely. In fact, our Bible tells us that Jesus did it pretty regularly, and that made him a bit scandalous, but most folks didn't. But here was a Samaritan walking on a road he probably shouldn't have been on, and he certainly didn't have elevated status, and nobody in the culture looked at him and said, here's a great man. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw When he looked, saw the physical form, and whatever happens in the eyes, the the, the light refracted in the back of his head and, and communicated with the nerve endings that sent synapses to the brain. It registered with the Samaritan, this man needs help, just like it registered with everybody else. But when it happened to the Samaritan, something different happened. He didn't pass by on the other side. The Bible says he took pity. What he saw caused him to have pity on the man half Jewish, half Babylonian, kind of looked down upon, But when he saw, he had pity. The same input, but very different thoughts. The same input, very different reaction. The same reality, very different emotion. I don't know why. Maybe because the Samaritan knew what it was like to be left alone. Maybe he knew what it was to be shunned, neglected, to experience life being made fun of. I don't know. Here's what the Bible said, the Samaritan who had the exact same experience as the other two but responded differently did. Verse 34, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. Now that was dangerous. Maybe they're still hiding around, the folks that beat him. But he spent time with him and he knelt down and he bandaged his wounds. And he poured oil and wine on him, very expensive. And he put the man on his own donkey, a lot of effort and energy into that. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, silver coins, very nice silver coins, a month to two months' wages each. And he gave them to the innkeeper. Now, if that's all he had, he had two, he could have just given one. That would have been generous. But he gave two above and beyond. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you have. And then Jesus looked at the lawyer who was trying to trap Jesus, trying to justify himself. And Jesus looked at the law and he says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers?" And the expert in the law, the one who was great at the law, great at understanding and teaching the law. And he said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus like, I can't hear you. The one who had mercy on him. I I, I don't know that that happened. In my mind, that's why Jesus is shaming him a little bit. Jesus didn't shame people. That's how I would do it. That's why I'm not Jesus. Because I'd have thrown the man under the bus. That's what I'd have done. Gotcha. Uh, but Jesus didn't do that. He's like the one who had mercy on him. The one who loved the way he wanted to be loved. The one who did unto others what he'd like to have done to him. And then Jesus says to the man, go and do likewise. You wonder the difference between being great at something and being great? It's not that complicated. It's when you see someone has a need that you can meet, You lean in to meet it. When you see someone who has a need, you can begin to help meet. You lean in to help meet it. And there are all kinds of reasons when we see needs that would make us not want to lean in and help. And they're logical, and they make sense, and sometimes they're exactly what you need to do, appropriate boundaries. But more often than not, very often in the life God has called us to live with Him, He's looked at his people and said, I want you to be great, and the path to greatness looks like this. Leverage what I blessed you with to bless others. Serve other people. Out of the good things that you're good with, help others. And so when you see a need, step up. When you see a need, lean forward. And you're always gonna have an opportunity to think about how challenging and different, uh, difficult it is. But here's something that I think we forget. If leveraged properly, the things we're good at or great at, they can truly make us great. I mean, maybe you're never going to be the great fighter pilot or the baseball star or the football guy or the whatever was on your thing. But you can have a, light of, a life of greatness because you have good things. You have excess here and there. You have the ability to see. And sometimes, if you'll let what you see move you to compassion and to pity, God can use the things that he's blessed you with to to bless other people. And you'll move from the category of superficially being great at something, which is important. It has its place. Thank God for people that are great at stuff. Our church would not be near where it is if we didn't have people that were great at stuff. But we also wouldn't be who we are and what we do if people who were great and good at stuff didn't leverage what they're great and good at to the benefit of other people. Dads. I bet you're great at wisdom when you look at the life of your kid because you have your experience. You know them. You love them. You see where life can take them. You have a vantage point they don't have. I bet you're great at wisdom that your kids need. It's good. Good for you. But the way you leverage that wisdom to the benefit of your kid, that that is what makes the difference between whether or not you're going to have an impact and whether or not you're going to be ignored. Some of you are excellent managers. You have profound insight and abilities and skills and you've studied and you've learned and people mentored you and you're good at that. You're great at that. But how you take what you know and what you're good at and leverage it to the benefit of the people that you're responsible to lead. Some of us have excess money and some of us are bright and smart and some of us are dedicated and skilled and some of us have resources and, and we can... No matter whether we ever achieve the category of great at or not, we can be great because we can leverage what we have. And being great is far more rewarding than being great at something. I think God calls us to take our great at and act great. Take our great at and act great. And this is a choice you can make. When you see the thing, the need, the opportunity, the challenge, the, the potentiality, do we do the walk around or do we take a moment to ask, God, would you have me lean in here? God, would you, would you have me lean in here? And take the moment to allow that situation, that circumstance, that potentiality, that opportunity to wash over our lives for just a moment and see if it's a walk-around kind of reality, something you're not supposed to engage, which is a healthy discussion, or whether God uses that to raise your compassion and your pity. I know me. The busier I am, the more challenging my responsibilities, the less margin I have to truly see the opportunity in front of me. To truly see it. The busier I am, the more challenges on my plate, the more likely I am to see and walk around. And I think in my head it's totally legit, and honestly, sometimes it is. But when God has given me opportunity and insight and resources, often what he wants me to do is to see the thing and reflect for a moment. Pause. To ask, is this a place of mercy? Is this a place of compassion? Is this a place of pity? Because the life that honors God, the life that makes us great, the life that actually rewards us, and at the end of the day, we all agree this is what makes a person not just great at something, but makes a truly great person, is when they leverage what they're good at to serve other people. It's a life that pleases and honors and best represents our Heavenly Father. It's much easier to logo yourself a Christian than to see and have pity. So Bob Goff writes in his book, love does i don't think jesus wants us to make a fashion statement or be edgy or promote ourselves on the back of our clothing and bracelets all the time either those are fine they're just not sufficient i think instead jesus wants us to write be awesome on our undershirts where it won't be seen and not on the back of a hoodie and to remember that god has called us to be great just be a a good neighbor Sometimes we think, but if I do it for them, I'm going to have to do it for everybody. It's going to raise expectations. That's not true. That's not true. It's to see what's in front of you and bless and serve and help there out of what you have. You don't have to change the world. God hasn't called you to change the world. He's called you and me to serve where he's planted us. And that limits the scope to us having regular opportunity to stop and pause. And to really see it. Sometimes I think all it takes is for us to decide I'm gonna make a difference in that family. I'm gonna write a little extra check. I'm not gonna try to figure out some way to write, I'm going to put some cash in an envelope, drop it near their mailbox, in their mailbox, and make a difference. I don't know about the rest of society and the rest of structure and everybody else on my block that might need it, but I have the capacity. I have 25 extra dollars this week, and I can. I can avoid a meal here, and I can do the thing that causes me, when I look at it, to feel compassion or pity. I think when you do that, when I do that kind of thing, what happens is God is propelling us down the road of not just being great at something, but becoming truly great people. And rather than asking, do I get a tax deduction and how can I funnel that through the church? You know, because really deep down, I want them to know where the money came from. And I'm not saying anybody in the room does that. I that those are kinds of things that maybe I struggle with. Maybe I don't. I don't want to be that honest on the stage. I don't know. Um, change subject, change subject, change subject. All right. Maybe what I can do instead of worrying about how it's all going to work, I can just get an envelope and bless someone. Whether anybody else does or not. When you see a need, you lean in. You can't do it all the time, but we can do it regularly. And I tell you, that's what I think puts a smile on God's face. When we engage, I think that's truly greatness. Maybe you don't ever reach your childhood dreams. Maybe you never get identified by your peers as great at. Maybe you're never going to win the Mother of the Year award. But you can invest in your children's life in a way that they don't just see you as having great wisdom, great resources, great opportunity. They look at you and say, you're great because you leveraged what you had for my good and you stayed at it. You can have a great marriage, even if you're not overly bright, don't have a lot of resources, don't have a lot of excess, exceptionally busy. You can have a great marriage if you'll stop and see the thing and ask God, is this a place where you want me to have pity, compassion? Is this an opportunity for us to work together? Is this, is this part of how you're going to make my life Great. And you do it over and over and over again. And over time, these gentle lean-ins, none of which, any one of which, doesn't create a massive splash in the pool. But each one of them creates tiny ripples that over time accumulate. They exaggerate over time. They grow And you'll look back on your life and the people you love will look back on your life. And your heavenly father, when you stand in front of him, he'll look back on your life and he'll say, you allowed me to work in your life and make you great. And I think it'll be deeply rewarding for you. That will be the mark of your legacy. Not whether you received the applause of men because you were great at something. Not because you got the recognition you deserve. But because you leveraged and I leveraged what we had for the benefit of other people under the umbrella that God is in control and orchestrating his plan and has called me to see what he's put in front of me. Not always, not often, to turn and walk around it. There's a last category of excuse I think that that I regularly hear that's unique to church people. I regularly hear church people say, well, somebody at church should do that. The, The church should do something about that. I think that's legitimate. Churches that aren't engaged in serving their communities that's a challenge. But the church is called primarily to serve the gospel and then to meet needs as we can. Gospel, that is we are, sa- we, are we are sinners that need to be saved by Jesus and then serve needs where we can. But, it, but my challenge with this one isn't that it's even completely wrong. The church should do something. The church certainly should. It's who is the church. Sometimes we'll get a call and somebody well-intentioned on, on the other end of the line will say, hey, there's this challenge, and I think the church should do something. When I get a call like that. Here's what I want to say. And who is the church? Because I think in your mind, maybe you think that there's this group of people that sleep and eat and live at the church and we wait for a phone call like this. We have nothing to do with our lives. We just have this mass group of people who have nothing but resources sitting in piles, time, energy, and money. And we get a call and the church is going to step in And make it all go away. And we're going to meet the need that God put on your heart. The compassion you felt. We're here to meet you. You can hang up the phone. And then when we get done engaging, we wait for the next person to call. And we rally that invisible army called the church. And it really comes from an immature theology of the church. The church is. You know who the church is? Can I be this bold? Here we are. We are the church. And whenever I feel compelled to, like, take my personal responsibility and push it off on another group of people, the government, the church, that teacher, that school, that's fine. Maybe that's an appropriate discussion on some level. But the first discussion should be, did God move my heart with compassion for this thing? So what's my response? So I like to say to people, hey, maybe we can help. What are you going to do? We'll match your thing. You'd be surprised how often there's nothing that materializes there. Sometimes we say, hey, that's a legitimate issue. We're hearing it consistently, and we're going to try to pull some resources together. What do you want to do to help be a part of that thing? You obviously feel compassion. God didn't give it to you to simply sound the alarm. He wants you to let—what do you—you'd be surprised how often it doesn't— no, that's not to say that you can't come to church leadership, and, but we are the church. And collectively, if we decide to be great, we'll be great. And if only a handful of us feel that compassion and want to leverage, it's not going to happen. Here's my, my primary point. God has called you and me to be great. And being great trumps being great at any day. And being great is deeply rewarding. And whether you're in high school, college, church leadership, you're your first Sunday in our church, it doesn't matter. You can begin to walk the path of greatness. From Jerusalem on the, on the peaks Down to the place of serving. And on the way, as you descend into your greatness, God's going to give you opportunity. He's going to open the door. He's going to cause you to see things. And you could, and I can, leverage what we've been given. I can't change the world, but I can leverage some of what I've been given and begin to lean in. Sometimes it'll be dangerous and risky. Sometimes it'll be expensive. Sometimes it's going to require great effort. It's usually going to be inconvenient. It's usually going to be easier to avoid. But that's how you and I become great, and God uses us. So would you do this? Would you take out your Connect card? And let's take a few steps together. I'm hoping that those of you who get what I'm talking about today feel affirmed. Our church is made up of people who regularly see the thing, have compassion, and lean in. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church, and many of you get it. Honestly, not all of us do. It's, it's okay. Today, you and I have an opportunity to turn towards greatness and to make it a commitment to our God, to ourselves, to our own legacy, to our own sense of satisfaction. I want to be a person that regularly pauses to see the opportunity. And I'm going to ask God, is this a place for me to have pity, compassion, and lean in? And if it is, I'm going to. And if not, I'm going to feel okay about stepping around. And I think if you open your eyes and see you and I commit together to do that. I think it won't take long. We're going to start sensing the smile of our heavenly Father as He is working in our lives to make us great. Some of us don't have a relationship with Jesus today, and I want to give you a chance to do that. Next step A on your connect card is, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the first time. Around here, we believe a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. It's pretty simple to begin. You don't have to do anything. You have to acknowledge something. I'm a sinner i am apart from god i'm distant god has not been in charge of my life acknowledge that admit that and then ask him to forgive that attitude that reality and then to become the leader of your life so we use a couple of words i want jesus to be my forgiver or my savior is kind of the biblical word of that and i want him to be my leader or the biblical word is i want him to be my lord if you want to do that today we ask you to check next step a and when the offering bucket comes by at the end of the service, you put that card in, you're not joining our church, you're not committing to give any money, you're not committing to serve on a team, you're just saying, I acknowledge where I am, I acknowledge the Lord of the universe, and I want Him to be the Lord of my life. In a moment when I pray, I'm going to use some words, and you can borrow mine, you can use your own, and say to God, God, I want you to forgive my sins, to cover my life, and to be my Lord. Now how about next step B, you want to get baptized where you go public with your faith. Next service, we have seven people scheduled to get baptized. They're doing a second service often, because that's when their families can come, and they want to celebrate with people in this church, and with their families, and second service for a lot of folks is more convenient. So if you want to hang around and see that at the end of the service, I'll preach the same message. It'll probably be better second. It usually is. Um, go ahead and come, come be a part of that, all right? But next step B, if you want to get baptized, we'll communicate with you. How about next step C? I'm going to ask my small group, I'm going to ask my small group, so not everybody, my small group. Hey, is there one need we can all rally around to work together to help meet? Is there one need we can help rally around? So like, like the leader might do this, that it might be a part of the thing, but if not, what if you just looked at your small group one day and they said, is there one need we can rally around to begin to help meet and join together those resources and leverage what you can? All right, how about next step D? I'm going to keep the question, what can I do to help in front of me as I see people? What can I do to help? What can I do to help? How would God have me lean in here? So I'm just asking you to make an intentional decision to turn your eyes towards compassion and pity and ask of yourself, what can I do to help? How about next step E? This week, I'm gonna choose to see at least one person in need and step in to help. Listen, it doesn't have to be anything big. It's the lady at work that's struggling. It's the person that needs encouragement. It's the flowers you buy. It's the small check you write. It's the lunch. It's the conversation. I'm not talking massive. I'm talking small steps that lead to greatness. And This week, you're committing to do one that you wouldn't normally do. All right, let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you haven't been ambiguous with us about what you have put on our plates. You have called us to greatness, and God, most of us want to be great. We want our lives to count. We want to be significant. We want to leave a legacy. Yet we can't do that if we're just preoccupied with getting the applause and recognition of people. We have to do it the way you told us to, and that is to leverage what you've given us to serve others. And today, as a church, as individuals, we make a conscious decision to open our eyes to see what's right in front of us. Heavenly Father, I want to pray right now for folks that aren't in a relationship with you. They're acknowledging with their heart, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Jesus. And they're asking you to be the leader of their lives. Lord, I pray for us this week that you would open our eyes to see what's around us and you would give us compassion and we wouldn't go to our excuses. Instead, we would begin to engage and you would truly begin to mold us and shape us to be great. I pray it in Jesus' name, a strong and holy son of God. Amen. Amen.